Welcome to the Golden Age of Baseball with Eddie Robinson, baseball's oldest living player. Eddie was a four-time All-Star, World Series winner, scout, and front office executive during his amazing 65-year career in baseball. These podcasts will give the baseball enthusiasts the opportunity to share a slice of baseball history with someone who actually lived it. And now, here's Eddie. Uh, there are a couple of things that we ought to add to the 1948 season. Uh, as far to my knowledge, the first hitting glove was used in the 1948 season. Uh, Marv Rickert, uh, an outfielder that they replaced Jeff Heath with. Jeff was a very potent bat in their lineup and a good outfielder, but he had broken his leg sliding at home plate just before the World Series. So they replaced him with Merv Rickard, or Marv Rickard, and uh, Marv had a sore, little sore on his right hand, and he wore a batting glove uh, to hit throughout the series. And the batting glove was similar to a uh, uh, golf glove. It had uh, the tips of the fingers were cut off and uh, but the the hand was covered by the glove, and it was very much like a golf glove. As far as I know, that's the first glove that was ever used. It was years before uh, players started using the glove regularly. I never. Uh, that was '48, and I retired in um, in '57, and I never used a glove. And I wish I would have. I wish the glove had been popular during my time because I think it really helped on cold days uh, when the bat handle's cold and slippery. I think you get a much better grip on the bat. And uh, I think uh, when you hit the ball, it, it didn't sting as much uh, out of glove. So I'm, I, I'm, I'm a proponent of the glove. I think it's been a a good addition to baseball, even though today it takes time for the players to fix their gloves so it feels just right before they hit. I think that's a coming deal that uh, most players have to do that, and um, and I understand why. Anyway, that I wanted to tell that, and I wanted to uh, tell what happened to Don Black. Uh, my roommate who had the cerebral hemorrhage and was out for over a month unconscious and uh, came came back uh, semi-conscious during the World Series and toward the end of the World Series uh, became conscious and knew what was going on. And he proceeded to recover and did recover over the winter the next year, he tried to go to spring training, or he did go to spring training, but he was unable to resume his career as a pitcher. And as a result, he retired. Bill Beck uh, had a Don Black night uh, the following year, 1949. They, they drew a lot of people. I, I think Beck gave him a check for in excess of $50,000, which was a very benevolent thing to do uh, by Beck. And uh, Don, uh, of course, received the money. I don't know what he did with it. I don't know if he straightened out or not. 
I heard later that uh, he began to drink again. He and I uh, lost touch with one another. I don't think I ever talked to Don uh, after he came to and, and regained consciousness in the hospital. I was traded to another team and just kind of lost contact with him. But uh, anyway, that's the end of the Don Black story, and I thought you might like to hear that. Uh, I had a meeting yesterday uh, with Daryl Evans. Uh, Daryl was a player for the Atlanta Braves and San Francisco Giants, Detroit Tigers. He was an excellent hitter. He got he, most most every year. He got a hundred base on balls. He was good. At, a uh, good on-base hitter, and uh, hit with power. Uh, he, I had he and um, and um, Hank Aaron and David Johnson uh, in Atlanta. They they all hit 40 home runs one year. I was young. Uh, I had first seen him when I was with the Athletics. I was working for Charlie Finley, and a brief look at him. Uh, in the uh, minor league spring training. And, uh, he wore glasses. Uh, he didn't have the terrific athletic build the players have. But uh, not Daryl that I really liked. I, I think it was the way he swung the bat. But anyway, when year after I saw him, and uh, Charlie had moved the athletics to Oakland, and I had go, I had gone to Atlanta uh, to be with Paul Richards, and was in charge of uh, player, player procurement and training. Uh, I left uh, uh, Daryl open for draft for the Rule Five draft, which is held at the winter meetings every year. You can players that are left for the Rule Five draft eligible to be drafted by any other major league team. Uh, at that time, I think it was for $25,000. The team that drafted him uh, had that player on their big league roster the next year for the whole year. Uh, they could not send him down to the mix. If they did, they had to ask waivers on him. If he wasn't claimed, then they could send him down. But if he was claimed, uh, they had to had to let him go to that team that claimed him. But first, before that, they had to offer him back to the uh, team he had been with, and uh, they had to uh, they could buy him back for twenty five thousand dollars, what you had paid for. So Darrell was one of those players, and and uh, Oakland left him. Oakland left him for available in the draft, so I drafted him and uh, took him on the team. And then uh, he wasn't going to make our team. And so I asked waivers on him. And I got waivers on him that uh, allowed me to to uh, the minor leagues. Uh, Oakland passed on him. Every, all major league teams passed. So that allows you to send the player back to the minor leagues. And I switched him to Virginia. And that was our triple. We had a very good year extremely good and it looked like he was going to be our third baseman the next year talking about uh 70 and uh I, 
69. I think maybe his first year with us was 69. Anyway, uh, he had general manager there in 72, and he by that was established as the third baseman for uh, the Braves. And he and Aaron and Davey hit 40 home runs. David Johnson and Hank Aaron each hit 40 home runs. And uh, we were a real powerhouse. We went into a lot of ball games leading in the seventh inning, but our relief pitching good and kept us from having a, a winning season. After that happened, and they all hit, those three guys hit 40 home runs. I thought, well, I'll... I'll try to help our pitchers out a little bit, and I'll move the fences. Uh, I did that. I moved the, uh, not down the line, I couldn't move that, but I moved the right center and left center field fence in five feet out. I moved it from out, away from home plate, five feet, which doesn't seem like a lot. And it didn't matter to Darrell Evans and, and Hank Aaron. But it was, a lot of those home runs he was hitting was just over the fence. And when I moved it back, the fence back five feet, it caught him. And the, the balls that had been home runs, they were just out, long fly balls that caught right at the fence. And he didn't hit, but he hit under 20 home runs the next year. So that was a, a case of helping your pitchers a little bit, but hurting David Johnson a lot. Darrell and I... Both lived in Fort Worth. I saw him at a golf tournament a couple of years ago, and uh, we agreed to get together for lunch or something and talk about old times. And and we didn't do it. He called me up, and we made a, an agreement to get together, and it didn't happen. Anyway, after about three attempts to get together, we finally did yesterday. It was such a pleasure to see him and. And we had so many, many things to talk about. And he had led such an interesting life and career since he, I had left Atlanta and he had been traded to San Francisco. Our paths hadn't crossed. He was always in the National League and I was always in the America. We just didn't see one another very often. And as a result, uh, we had a lot of stories to tell and catching up to do. And we had a meeting yesterday that he came to my house at noon and 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 we sat and talked another for six straight hours just going over old times and theories about baseball and it was so enjoyable i just wanted you to know about it and and, and want to tell you one very interesting thing that came from our conversation yesterday <clears throat> daryl turned out to be a a very bright and verbal guy. He liked to talk, tell stories. And we we went back to the time that I acquired him from Kansas City. And he told me about what had happened to him. Of course, I knew what had happened in Atlanta. He had made me very proud. And I always pointed to him with pride. I always pointed him out to people as one of my acquisitions that I was most proud of. And he really did make me proud. He he was a very good hitter, and and a good he was a, he was just a really good player. And he told me a bit of his exploits with the San Francisco and Detroit, and then after baseball he had done a little bit of managing and scouting and 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 a lot of stories 
uh, go with that. The players he met and people he worked with out of the uh, when he was managing, and just very delightful conversation. And of course, 100% baseball, except for one question which I asked him, and I'd been wanting to ask him about it, but never had had the opportunity, of course. And uh, I told my wife, Betty, I said, I'm going to ask Darrell about this and see what he says. So I, I, I posed the question. It wasn't a baseball question. I said, Darrell, I, I heard a number of years ago, I don't know, over 10 or 12 years ago, I heard that or read in the paper that you had seen, you and your wife had seen a flying saucer while you were playing for the San Francisco Giants. Uh, I said, is there anything to that story? He said, absolutely. He said, I really did see a flying saucer. And uh, he said, I can tell you the story about it. He started off telling me about um, his father. Uh, His father uh, had been an athlete. His mother was a professional. She played professional baseball in the in the women's league and was one of the better players. I never knew that until he told me, but that was really interesting. He came from a very uh, athletic background. And he said his father uh, had become a mechanical engineer. He had a job in Pasadena, California with a club with a company that made um, parts for the space program uh it was not run by the government but it was a company that made some parts for them and his father helped design the parts and um, and had something to do with the with the space program i don't know if it had anything to do with me seeing the flying saucer or not but he said they lived in pasadena and and he was playing for the uh, Giants. His father, they lived in Pasadena, right near the Rose Bowl uh, when he was a kid growing up. Of course, he got into pro baseball, and uh, his baseball took him back to playing as a member of the San Francisco Giants. And he and his wife uh, had a, a rented an apartment across the bay on the Oakland side of the bay and it was a very nice apartment it was up in the hills uh, overlooking the bay it took him about uh, he said about 45 minutes to drive uh, that he had to make every night into the ballpark and after the game it took him that long to get home but they just loved where they were living and he said one night uh, he, he said the game was late getting home and he said, my wife sometimes would be in bed. Uh, sometimes she'd be up waiting on me. He said, this one was up waiting for me. I said, what are you doing up? She said, come here. I want you to see something. And she pointed an, a bright object to me that was in the sky a distance, a, a long distance away. And she said, that bright spot's there. And it, 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 it moved. It caught my eye, and I've been watching it. And it's just sitting there in one spot. And uh, she said, I, I just, it's very interesting. And I looked at it, and I could see why she was interested. And it was a very bright spot, like a, uh, he said it was oval. 
and uh, brighter, uh, but brighter, many times brighter than a star. And he said after we watched it about 20 or 30 minutes, uh, he said it started moving, and it kept getting closer and closer and brighter, and uh, you could see it was an object and it was getting bigger. That it, it came, continued to get close. He said it got as close as 40 yards from, uh, he said on the second floor of this apartment house, and he said it got within 40 yards of where we were standing on our patio looking at it. He said it, it just stayed there. He said it was oval in shape, and uh, it had the interior lights. He didn't mention seeing anything in it, but he said it had like uh, out the back of it, uh, at the back of the oval, it had like a area where it would have propulsion, like a, maybe a motor or something. But it said it was ab it made no noise at all. He said it just glided through the air and it stopped right outside of our apartment. So there was no doubt. He said, I, I wanted to run and get my camera and get a picture of it. And he said, I, I, I waited a bit too long because he said, when I went to get the camera and came back, it had moved off and was going off into the distance. And he said, I never got a picture, but he said, uh, that is true. I saw a flying saucer and was within 40 feet of it. That to me was some story. Uh, I'd, I'd heard about flying saucers and read about them and, and I got a flying saucer story to tell you. Coming up soon when I get with the White Sox, uh, I'll tell you about this Matt and, and uh, she was littered with flying saucers. <laughs> all, all sorts of things happen to you when you're a Major League Baseball player. Thank you for listening to the Golden Age of Baseball with baseball legend Eddie Robinson. If you have a question for Eddie or would like to suggest a topic for him to discuss, please email eddie.robinson65 at yahoo.com. And for an even deeper dive into the Golden Age of Baseball, read his autobiography, Lucky Me, My 65 Years in Baseball which you can find on goodreads.com and on Amazon. The executive producer of the Golden Age of Baseball is Greg Ricks. Our engineer is Mark Robinson, and our podcast coordinator is Abby Robinson. Mm -hmm.